everyone, this is Amanda Borsaldan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, in honor of International Women's Day, I'm taking up a bloody, messy topic, menstruation rights, and speaking with Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, the co-founder of the advocacy group, Period Equity. Jennifer is a lawyer and the vice president and the inaugural Women and Democracy Fellow of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. Her work focuses on gender, politics, and menstruation, including the campaign to squash the tampon tax. Her 2017 book, Periods Gone Public, Taking a Stand for Menstrual Equity, is great fun to read and incredibly enlightening. We have a frank conversation about menstruation and its role in popular culture and a lot of laughs too. Enjoy. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me. Where am I finding you today? Good morning from New York City. Great. Thanks for coming. We're here to discuss period equality, menstrual products, all sorts of messy, bloody things, and just to make people's stomachs turn. No, actually, we're going to normalize the conversation. We're going to discuss, first of all, what is menstrual equity and how did you come up with this term? Well, thank you so much for having me. This is about my favorite thing to discuss, especially um, on International Women's Day. But uh, menstrual equity is a phrase and a frame that um, I came up with about five or six years ago. Um, the The context was that I had discovered that um, two kids in my community were collecting tampons and pads for our local food pantry uh, because they had discovered that this was a need in the food pantry that wasn't that wasn't being met by the budgets that they had and the products um, that they had available for their clients. And um, while I was really happy to contribute to their donation drive as an attorney um, by day uh, and a policy wonk, I, it was kind of flummoxed me that we would have any kind of social service agency that relied on kids to provide the things that were needed. And I wanted to understand better why menstruation and menstrual products were not part of their formal budget. I discovered basically um, that within the United States government, there was almost no attention paid to menstruation and the ways that um, need of menstrual products or, in, or inability to afford them or access them was otherwise written into our laws. So this phrase menstrual equity was the start basically of a policy campaign and agenda to convince lawmakers and leaders that menstruation, um, that its exclusion was uh, a form of inequity and uh, made it challenging or sometimes impossible for anybody who needs these products to be able to participate fully and fairly in civic life, whether that is in their ability to go to school, to go to work, to contribute to the economy. Um, the idea of using the phrase equity, a lot of a lot of folks around the world have been focused on this issue and considered menstruation in the frame of human rights and public health. Uh, here in the United States, I felt really strongly that if we talked about it in the frame of equity, that would hearken to sort of core democratic principles that our lawmakers would be willing to listen to and latch on to. Uh, we have very deeply polarized partisan politics here. And while I thought it might be likely that I could get Democrats involved, I thought it could be harder to get conservatives or Republicans. But this idea of equitable access and ability to participate seemed to me perhaps something that would be bipartisan and therefore have any hope of success, you know, in our halls of government. 
So how is that going for you in terms of bipartisan support? (laughs) Well, that's the funny punchline here, right? Because it actually here in the U.S. is going rather well. Um, It's not perfect. And we're far, far, far from a solution. And, you know, we're seeing headlines from around the world about places like Scotland um, making menstrual products freely available to anyone who needs them. And New Zealand um, making them freely available in schools. And France just did the same. Um, And England just eliminated its tampon tax. So here in the U.S., we're not quite at that, that stage or ability to have some grand national mandate, but that's also because of the way the U.S. government functions. We are a republic of states. We have 50 states that have autonomy um, over certain um, aspects of, of lawmaking. So it's not like there's a singular magic period law that the president of the United States can issue, but rather we have to rely on interventions at the local level, at the state level, and federally to to pull it together. And so that is working. We've had, um, over the past five years since, um, you know, from, from my own experience in this movement, we've seen 10 states eliminate their sales tax on menstrual products. Um, there were 10 that did so before 2015. Um, so that means we have 30 to go. But that's something that has to be done state by state. Um, the federal government does not have oversight over sales tax collection. Could the word uh, mandate be a key into why this isn't happening so quickly? Meaning it's not a uh, woman date, it's a mandate to get these things changed. It's not a woman date and it's menstruation. Yeah, we've got men's <laughs> feet, footprints all over this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's um, so, yes, I think all of our language re- requires that kind of, that, that kind of keen eye. Um, but I do think that our... Uh, leaders, many of our leaders have taken this seriously and done things like make menstrual products available in schools. So five states have done that. For people who are incarcerated, it's actually kind of stunning to think about people who are in the custody of a government being denied these products when it's the government that is responsible for, for providing them. So when I say that 13 states now require it and the federal government now requires it, on the one hand, that feels like progress because that number was zero five years ago. But on the other hand, that is horrifying to think that, you know, in the other 37 states, it is not required. Right. And there's, of course, the financial aspect. I took one of, I have uh, six children, three girls, three boys, and I took one of my sons to the supermarket aisle and I just pointed out all the products, the feminine products and how much they cost. And he's quick in in math. And so he he said, wow, Ima, that means you must spend something like $70 a year on this stuff. And that's just incredible. So there are several women who don't have that $70 a year to spend on these products. What about those women? Exactly. And I'm glad you pointed it out, even from the context of your family. It's not, for many people, it's not just about themselves, but it's about the people that they care for. So in a household, this can be an expense that rivals the ability to put food on the table or to pay the rent. Um, and that is just unacceptable. Like, like why we've sort of landed on that this is the this is this is the this is the norm or this is the thing we need to hide or be quiet about um is is just we we have to move away from that so yeah there the kinds of examples that are making um that that are part of the 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 legal mechanics right now are 
are addressing various agencies, like public agencies that can help make the products more available and more accessible. But when it comes down to it, for people who exist outside of those safety nets um, and they're just plain unaffordable, we we have to consider the ways that public policy can can make a difference. The Scotland law that I pointed out that was passed um, at the end of 2020 um, is, is probably the best example of a piece of legislation that that aspires to do that. It 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 acknowledges that anybody could have this need, not just you know, not just the horrifying examples of people who are in the state's custody um, or people who go to school, but at any particular point in their life. So they have, it basically exists as a voucher system that if you state you have the need, um, you're, you're, a, you're given a voucher um, to be able to go buy or access those products in the way that is most safe for you or most accessible to you. And it's a really important thing to consider because, um, you know, it's, it's a, there's such a wide variety of people who could experience this, whether it's somebody who is not necessarily um, low income, but a victim of domestic violence and doesn't have access to the family budget. Uh, for people who are transgender, or otherwise, you know, don't exist safely on the streets. Um, so there's a lot of people who who menstruate and a lot of people who can fall under this umbrella. So just sticking to public agencies in and of itself doesn't capture the the vast need that it, that could exist. There's so much stigma related to menstruation. A lot of it, I think, just comes from men in general being ickied out by the idea of this blood that's coming out all the time. But it's based in our most ancient traditions and, and indeed in the Bible. Uh, you mentioned that in your book, Periods Gone Public, uh, the roots of the stigma. Can you ex- explain a little bit more for our Judeo-Christian society? Yeah, you know, the, those roots run really deep and um, go, going all the way back to the Torah or the Old Testament, um, there is quite a bit of commentary on the cleanliness of menstruation, on rules and rituals around menstruation. And it it largely points to um, a bodily function that is to be hidden Avoided um, that causes that causes harm, even even though it's still in the context of understanding that it also causes life. Um, so I think there's just um, generations old misogyny, as you said earlier, that that animates our feelings about menstruation and the way we still, um, you know, tiptoe around it today, except for, of course, on this podcast. Um, I mean, I wrote a book called Periods Gone Public. So obviously, um, I'm not somebody who who shies away from it. Um, and I spend a lot of time talking to reporters or legislators or folks of influence to to really get this this word out that these kinds of laws are taking shape and are taking root and are possible to pass even even in in broken governments like we see here in the United States where our highly partisan um almost wholly dysfunctional congress has managed to pass two uh, exemplary pieces of menstrual access legislation, uh, including for people who are incarcerated in federal facilities. They did that in 2018 in a law called the First Step Act. Um, and in just this past year, um, when the Congress passed um, 
coronavirus relief, they included a provision that would make menstrual products more affordable as well. Um, but that stigma is such a deeply, deeply felt piece of this entire this entire discussion. You know, people will ask often if um, if it's intimidating or embarrassing to speak about menstruation so frequently in front of men, because lawmakers largely, um, you know, are still majority men. And um, my answer is it's actually kind of the opposite. I've found that in talking about it, their discomfort, if they, you know, exhibit any, which, which they often do, um, is only an opportunity for my empowerment. I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to set the stage and the tone with body language, with the vocabulary we're going to use. We're not going to use euphemisms. We're not going to giggle or back away from it. We're going to just say what we're talking about. Um, and nobody's ever, no one's ever melted into the ground or, or died <laughs> from having to do that. They all kind of get their act together and, and keep up. But in the few seconds or minute that it took them to keep up, I've actually taught them to do something, which is to speak openly um, and proactively and productively about menstruation, which is which is a great way to counteract, you know, the the many thousands of years bias we're up against. I mean, in my family, most of our conversation happens at the dinner table, and I often bring up the idea of menstruation. As I said, I have three daughters, three sons, and my husband keeps saying that I'm going to have to pay thousands of dollars for the son's uh, psychological services in the future. But I say quite the opposite. The more we talk about it, the more we make it more normalized, they won't be flexed or flummoxed or verklempt at all anytime it comes up in their in their futures. But there are so few, especially I would say, uh, religious Jewish men who can have that conversation in any kind of open way. And even my assistant who lives in Hungary said that he just can't handle the idea of even the menstrual cup, which I just find really interesting that, you know, in our modern era, when everyone knows about procreation, people can't have this conversation about something that's happening to half the the population for what, 40 years of their lives? It's just astounding to me. It, it is astounding. And <clears throat> it's funny because in, in this short period of time, you know, that I've been working on this, I'm 53. So it's, you know, basically took me till my mid 40s to become menstruation proselytizer, um, just in time, for, <laughs> just in time for it to end. But um <laughs> But I've, I've been fortunate to travel the world, including to Israel, including to India, including to Nepal, including to Nairobi, Kenya, and talk to folks about menstruation. And um, there's such a wide gamut of, of comfort and ability to be open about it. And I would say that for me, in rather unexpected corners, I've had really, really enlightening um, and exciting conversations with men about it who are who are on the ground working in their communities, whether it's Kathmandu or um, you know New Delhi or in you name it, getting this done. And then here in the United States, I feel like um, we we have a lot of we have a lot more ground to cover to get people to move along. Not just because there's stigma around menstruation, but because there's this strange notion that somehow we must be better than this. This is the kind of thing that would happen over there or in a country we, we deem, you know, to be, to be, to have 
deeper problems, whether it comes to misogyny or poverty um, or, you know, you name it, all the factors that, that go into making menstruation a marginalized issue. When the truth of the matter is, right here in our cities, in our rural communities, um, we're still having a hard time having these conversations. But I would say also that there has been progress. I've, I've never seen such a, such a 180 change um, in, in this, for me, in a short time of my own life, of having gone, you know, not not talking about it because, because it terrified me or anything like that. It just... I just didn't think about it. And I think that's, I think that's the, that's like, sometimes you call it the mushy middle in politics. I think most of us are in, or I hope many of us are in that mushy middle of thinking, just not thinking about it. And then when being, being pushed to it or hearing a story, you know, hearing a conversation like the one we're having now saying, oh my goodness, I never thought about that. Gosh, for somebody, I'm somebody who could afford these products and have open conversations, and and I've even had my bad moments with it. Um, and can you imagine for somebody who is young or you know doesn't have agency over their daily life or can't actually afford these products for themselves or their family? How embarrassing that would be to have to admit it and then to seek you know, not even thinking there could be a solution. So I love having this conversation because the more people who hear it, um, I know there'll be people who'll still say, why are you putting this on the air? Or that's gross. Or, you know, having their complaints. But there'll be hopefully five more for every one of those who says, I never thought about this. What can I do to make a difference? This seems solvable. One thing I'd never thought about before discussing uh, the idea of this conversation with my kids at the dinner table, obviously, is uh, they mentioned to me, you know, Ima, if you ever look at those Always commercials or any of the product commercials, they never use red when they're testing out the product, like to talk about how absorbent they are. It's never red. It's always blue. And these women are doing these cartwheels, you know, things I don't generally do in my everyday life. Anyway, always in white, white, white pants. And it's so sterilized. The whole popular culture representation of it, at least in these product commercials, is so bleached. Bleached is such a great, powerful word for it. Um, because it's for so many reasons. You're right. These, these ads, I especially think of the ones from when I was growing up. I can picture the gymnast. I think it was Kathy Rigby, um, you know, with her blonde hair and her white leotard. Um, and, you know, nary a stain in sight. And that, that sort of defeat, you know, that creates an, a whole extra layer of, of, of problem. And, and, and it, it digs even deeper into that stigma idea that it's so it, that we have to hide this. So we have to go to such great lengths to show our purity and our cleanliness and to keep it utterly invisible to the outside world. So I would say that the good news is that the product companies are um, seeing that this activism and this, this message also relates to the way that they've contributed to the stigma issue over the better part of the past century since they've been marketing and selling these products. Um, and, you know, it, it causes a tension, I think, um, in, in even the kind of policy advocacy that I do. Whereas on the one hand, I'm arguing that people need access to these products to be able to take care of themselves. And on the other hand, it's because not having them somehow is the thing that's going to make them feel most, you know, 
most violated or most like that they're sort of betraying the principle by letting the blood show. Um, so, you know, the truth is somewhere in between. We really, I think, want to aspire to a society that encourages healthy behavior and relationship with menstruation where it's not something that we revile and it's not something that people have to hide or feel ashamed about but it is something we want to pe- we want people to be able to have as much information and knowledge about so that they can take care of themselves communicate effectively with others so that we can respect one another um, so that we can respect the fact that our bodies are our temples and actually are part of the entire trajectory of humankind um, so there should be respect and reverence. Um, but there's like, you know, there is that, that weird tension between the two. But you're absolutely right. Those ads, um, are just such a trip. The blue liquid, it's not even like blue liquid. It's like this, this, it looks like a beautiful aqua sea. Um, it, you know what I mean? It's like something about it is even like even more sterile than just, <laughs> than just choosing another color that's not right. red. Um, but, but it, so it's, and it's nice to see that around the world, um, you know, knowing sort of that there's this, this, um, this, this, the, the, the private, sector interests in selling shame um, come up against, I think, newer, younger companies that are willing to have this more complex conversation about menstruation. And those companies are doing a better job of communicating about it, whether it's through product ads, you know, that still are part of part of a money-making operation for them, but at least, you know, using that that power and that influence to show to show real menstruation. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. So apropos, one of the biggest commercial endeavors in the world in terms of menstruation, one of the earliest films you mentioned in your book was created by Disney. None other than Disney. Can you talk a little bit about this film? So back in the 1940s and 50s, um, there the the product companies, the big companies, the the P and Gs and the Johnson and Johnsons and Kimberly Clark were largely responsible for um, not just menstrual products, but education and communication around menstrual products, which include the ads for the products that would appear in magazines and things like that. Um, but at some point. Um, the Walt Disney Company got involved um, and produced a film called, I think it's called The Story of Menstruation. Um, and it it's actually, the odd thing about it is it's actually shockingly ahead of its time. There's some, there's some aspects of it that surely play into all of these, these ideas about menstruation being something that we hide and, and, and don't speak publicly about. But on the flip side, it actually demonstrates more of a reverence to the bodily function um, than than you might expect for the time and for the commercialism of it. Um, but over over the years, there's been not just pushback against commercial product advertisement, but the financial stake that many of these companies have in in how we define and consider menstruation. So even for me, when I remember in elementary school having, you know, the assembly where where the girls are separated from the boys and we get to hear all about, you know, what, what's coming. And um, 
And I kind of always knew it at the time, but in my research for the book, was was actually thoroughly stunned to see that Kimberly Clark, the brand that makes Kotex, underwrote the entire operation. And so there's all this kind of like insidious language to point you in directions that have you buying their products um, and and creating brand loyalty very early on. And a lot of the research around menstrual products, um, especially as we were just talking about a minute ago, that there have been these new products and more modern kind of products coming into the market, whether it's period underwear or um, you mentioned menstrual cups, which are not new, but the interest in them and the environmental, um, you know, benefits of them are part of the narrative now. Um, but the um, menstrual product branding is something that has been well studied. And it shows that it's one of these almost like impenetrable forces that if your mom used it or your grandma used it and told you that you should use this product, even using the phrase Kotex as a substitute for for pads, like we might say Kleenex for tissues, sure. um, is part of an entirely, you know, purposeful branding operation. And to know that in everything we think, say, see, touch, feel, when it comes to menstruation on the commercial market, we are pawns. It has been studied and the, and the desire has been to, you know, keep, there's an insidious force there. I guess that's the, the best way to say it. And, um, we're in an age and stage, I think, especially with this incredible, young generation coming up who are, you know, just sort of wise beyond their years and and have the tools of the internet and the the instincts for global activism um, to to turn that on its head. But to know that it's been there and it's been there for a good century. That is so fascinating. And and just the one of the other things that really hit me in your book is you talk about Wow, I wish that Laura Ingalls Wilder had discussed what she used in terms of menstrual products. And I find this over and over again, and part of my job is to write about archaeology. And so I'm always asking the archaeologists, what do you think the women of this period used for for menstrual products? And most of the male archaeologists aren't very uh, ready to answer that question, shall we say. But it's just so fascinating to see the development and the evolution of the products. So what did Laura Ingalls Wilder use? She likely used um, some sort of reusable, um, you know, rag or cloth. And what's really interesting is there's there's um, there's all kinds of of research and information about menstrual management over over the centuries, um, and everything sort of from hand spun cotton to make to make tampons to you know the ways that that cloth could be held into place um, to be used as a pad has been has been cataloged but interestingly in sort of the late the 19th century US into early early 20th century there is there is less there's just less information and discourse at least that I was able to find there's um a really really wonderful book called the modern period um, and by Lara Frydenfeld, and it talks a lot about the evolution of menstrual products in the 20th century um, so there's there's really interesting fodder to dig into there. And again, it goes a lot to sort of the marketing and education around these products, even how uh, pads were first brought into the U.S. market as um, as a, a part of the learning of the, the um, 
after World War One about sort of what what stops blood, um, there was there was an opportunity to translate that into modern pads, um, and then um, the evolution over the course of the century to include you know belts to hold them up, and then and then stickiness you know to stick them to underwear. Um, so that evolution here, the modern evolution, there's there's a there's a lot to be said. Um, but somewhere in that like pioneer period, um, there, I, I was, ha- I had a hard time finding anybody who, who wrote about or narrated that in their own, their own story. Um, so one of the interesting anecdotes of 20th century, um, menstruation management or product usage is the, this notorious story about the astronaut Sally Ride um, when she was going into space and NASA asked her like what she would need to manage her period over the course of, you know, one period. And they thought it was a hundred tampons. Um, so, you know, NASA <laughs> didn't even quite have it down. <laughs> it's not rocket uh, science, <laughs> people. <laughs> wow. That is brilliant. I love that. Let's talk about the environmental impact. You mentioned it uh, slightly earlier, but as you said, there are some new or alt-noy, new old uh, products that are being used more frequently by people, women, who are interested in also saving the environment. What are some of these products? So we mentioned earlier menstrual cups, which are not new. They've been they've been on the market also for almost a century. Um, but the interest in them and dialogue around them has um, certainly you know heated up as people understand that using disposable products you know creates waste that that becomes part of our our environmental footprint. Um, so too is using cloth pads, which, you know, has a bit of that old school sound to it. But um, there are places, there are companies that make them in, you know, sort of modern formats with beautiful fabrics that, um, you know, create something that for many people could be quite special to use. Um, you know, in, in parts of, in, in all different corners of the globe, I think there's, um, you know, varying interest in, these these products, which maybe are called alternative, only because we've become so used to this this app, you know, this this menu of tampons and pad and disposable pads. Um, but for a variety of reasons too, it's not just environmental, and in some, it's really the ability to manage waste in their own communities. Um, for some, there are multiple stigmas attached to using, certainly to using internal products, cups and tampons, such that pads are are, are preferred. Um, period underwear is another one that has had a lot of traction, I think, in it, certainly in the United States and and I think um, in other part in other Western nations, um, and there are a lot of companies that are are not just um, creating products that um, are you know responsibly produced um, and healthier to use um, because again they don't require they don't require the environmental footprint of disposable products or the concerns that some folks have about using internally internal products. Um, but there's a price point issue, I guess, for a lot of the, um, for a lot of the reusable products that even though they are more cost effective over time, sometimes require an upfront payment that can be challenging for folks. So that's a little bit of a gap that has to be bridged as well. But I'm going to say something that's maybe a little bit counterintuitive or even controversial about, um, about the environmental impact of menstrual products, which is, there is a, um, I mean, there's a massive sea of ways 
that um, humans around the world are contributing to our environmental crisis. And I hate to put the burden on yet another burden on the shoulders of women and on the shoulders of people who menstruate, that somehow you're doing something wrong or bad if using a disposable pad um, or a plastic ampl- applicator tampon is the thing you need to use. And if that, and that goes double for people who are in these um, circumstances that we talked about at the top of the podcast, whether whether it's because they're in an unsafe search situation at home, because they're in the custody of the state, because um, because their entire identity makes them a target. And I do not want to prescribe or put extra guilt or burden on any of them that they're somehow also lending to you know, our, our global um, environmental crisis because using a disposable pad is the safest thing for them to do because they're in a home without running water, because they're in an abusive home where trying to wash out a menstrual cup or a cloth pad would create mess that could put them in danger um, or or otherwise trigger, you know, or anger the person who causes them harm because they have no choice, because they're in a circumstance where the state is responsible for providing them with this product. So I'd want to say that really emphatically. Um, I would way rather see people forego using plastic water bottles and plastic utensils than make the claim that menstrual products are the place to start um, because there are already so many biases and and things working against women that it's just not fair to start there. We do not have to have the entire planet on our shoulders, which it feels like we do most days anyway. (laughs) Definitely during uh, the coronavirus crisis as well. Everything is on our shoulders, (laughs) to be honest, all the kids. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And that, you know, and that's a piece of the story too, in terms of the policy reforms. A lot of the things that I was mentioning early on, these opportunities for Governments to make menstrual products tax-free or to make them freely available in the, you know, in the various services that we use goes double actually for the coronavirus and not the other way around. Not the, well, let's let that be the first thing to go um, because it seems small or it seems unimportant, but quite the opposite. Women are bearing so much of the burden of childcare as low-wage workers, as frontline workers, that the very first things we should be doing are ensuring that menstruation is not one additional burden on the extraordinary role women have played in basically saving us this past year. So I would call that an essential form of COVID relief is anything related to menstruation. Amen. Jennifer, thank you so much. It's been really a delight and a pleasure and enlightening. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I mean, it goes, it's it's a huge, huge contribution. And I'm thrilled that your listeners um, get to hear about periods today. (laughs) And not just my kids. (laughs) (laughs) And not just your kids at the dinner table. (laughs) Exactly. Yofi, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 